Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You are listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today, we're in, we're still in the summer of 2009 uh, across the English Channel to Wimbledon, where Roger secured number 15, Brian eclipsing Pete Sampras, who was on site to witness the coronation. Plenty of history here, Vic. I mean, 15 majors, the most all-time in the open era. Pete Sampras, as you say, in the house. No better way to follow up his first ever French Open title, completing the career slam. He caps it off with what they call the channel slam. He went on both sides of the English channel. And I will put out the point, this is one of the two best, three best Federer finals at, at any major anywhere. And with so much history on the line, I think that makes this one even better. It's interesting you say that because there's some noise writings and dialogues post-match that this was something that Andy lost rather than Roger won, or maybe Roger shouldn't have even have won this. I'm going to ask you about that when we get to the final. Um, So hang on to that. But first, I just want to get your quick thoughts on the City Open news. Got canceled. Uh, Does this set a bad precedent? What are your thoughts overall on what's going on? Um. Mark Ein, who runs that tournament, had been pretty open from the time that they announced that that would be the first tournament back, and that it was very much at risk. Nothing was certain, and I think that's one thing we've all learned in 2020. I know you and I have talked about this before on the, on the podcast, how it's a men's 500-level event, but on the WTA side, it's one rung lower. So they made the decision that there was not going to be a women's tournament. The women are now going, uh, I believe, in Lexington, Kentucky, and they've got the most ridiculous player field ever led by Serena Williams and a whole bunch of other major winners. Um, so it was always going to be the men. And then the plan was you play the city open, then you go up to New York where they're going to host the Cincinnati masters into the U S open. But I think the city open would have made a lot of sense because then you get the week off before the U S open instead of playing. Let's, let's just still call it Cincinnati um, playing Cincinnati right into New York. That's, you roll one right into the other. Obviously there's more money and points at store for a master's. So some guys would certainly be willing to and happy to play that event. Um, But it always made sense to go play DC, but I think the travel just got to be a little bit too much with everybody. And this is why tennis is so difficult right now, because everybody coming in from all over the world, as opposed to just moving around, you know, uh, teams like baseball is trying to do, and hopefully they're able to do it, or certainly the bubble that the NBA and the NHL are about to, or they're into, but they're about to begin play in in Florida and Canada respectively. Um, So I don't think I'm shocked that the city open was canceled just because it comes down to the travel and the local regulations in place. And it ultimately is just a reminder that as we can plan all we want, but you know, this, this virus is still here and it's calling the shots and the local health leaders and the government leaders, they're the ones who are making these ultimate calls, but does it affect the U S open? I really don't think it does. Um, I think the U S open field is going to look very different, but I think we've known that for some time, just based on how the schedule is going to be. Um, I know we talked last time about, uh, like, you don't think that I don't think Nadal will probably defend his title. Um, but I, I still think, the Cincinnati and the U S open will be played barring something absolutely drastic happening over the next couple of weeks. But even those, you know, reminders that they're still up in the air. This NBA bubble model, um, 
I mean, it still remains to be seen. There were some scrimmages and stuff yesterday, but pretty remarkable execution. So far, absolutely. Um, to parlay that into tennis, do you see like the U.S. Open and like the French Open uh, instituting or incorporating some kind of a bubble model like the NBA, or is it just too disparate with tennis players? I think it's too too disparate with tennis players. I don't think the U.S. Open is going to do it just because. A, the situation in New York is so much better uh, than it was a few months ago that there's not as much prevalence of the virus out and about. Now, yeah, everybody still has to take precautions and you shouldn't be doing anything dumb. But in terms of locking it down completely, I don't think that's something they need to do. And I just don't think it's worth it. Um, There is a bubble right now in tennis at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, uh, World Team Tennis, which is always the the post-Wimbledon team event. It was started by Billie Jean King. It's the oldest uh, co-ed, might be the only co-ed professional sports league, certainly in America. And they have had everybody down there at the Greenbrier in West Virginia playing. Um, It's worked out well. There have not been any uh, positive tests. Danielle Collins, one of the better American women out there, was just actually kicked out of the league. Yeah, she uh, left the bubble. Um, Some controversy about that. So uh, Carlos Silva, the CEO of the league, basically that she was dismissed for the season because she violated the protocols. Um, and that seems to be going well. Now that is a much smaller scale, of course, than a grand slam. Uh, most of the players, if not all are, are were already based in the U S so there was a little less travel involved, but the world team tennis bubble is, seems to be working quite well. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Off the high of the French open Brian, which we covered in detail last time, milestone accomplishment obviously just one month later uh no tournaments in between first time we've done a podcast episode where we don't have a build-up into the current tournament uh we go straight to wimbledon 2009 i don't have a whole lot to say about the field i think the main point of our focus will be the final but i will run through roger's path and i'm curious what you think in terms of who had the more difficult path. Obviously, uh, I think it will speak for itself here, but Yen Sun Lu in the first round, 5-3-2. Guillermo Lopez, 2-2-4. Philip Kohlschreiber, who's played Roger a few times, got four sets out of him, 3-2. What happens when they win? I didn't know how to read the score line on when you lose a set. Like So it's 3-2-6-7. Is that how you say it? Or is there a special way to say that? Um, you would probably, when it's not straight sets, or at least this is how I do it, because there's really no set rule, yeah. you would say the full set score. So for that match, it would be like, and this had like the chair umpire would announce it after. Federer wins uh, 6-3, 6-2, 6-7, 6-1. Got it. Okay. So you can't truncate it unless it's straight sets. That's generally how I do okay. it. Okay. Well, that's how I'm going to do it then. You're the certified expert on this program. Robin Soderling, 4-6-6. You know, uh, the guy's hanging around, and there's going to be a match where uh, down the line here where he gets his revenge on Roger, and we talked about him last episode as well, but here he is back again, and he gave him a run for his money. Ivo Karlovic, the big server, 3-5-6. Mostly, though, Roger's making quick work out of everybody here, but one person that I wanted to ask you about was Tommy Haas, who he faced again, 6-5-3. But my question is that Tommy Haas beat Djokovic in the match before 
this one against Roger. Different outcome. Djokovic beats Haas and faces Roger in the semis, or not yet. Uh, I would say not yet, but I would say it's a closer match. I mean, and even the Haas match was tight. I mean, it was three relatively tight sets, but Haas is somebody that Federer, you know, they, they're playing against each other by this point for, they've probably been familiar with each other for close to 15 years Yeah, um, at different levels of the sport. Federer is a lot more comfortable, I would say, against Haas than he would be against, I mean, he'd still be comfortable against Djokovic, but um, maybe Djokovic plays him a little bit tougher. We certainly have seen that uh, come to pass in, in the 10 plus years that that followed this tournament. Uh, one thing I will go back to, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is how he beat Soderling in the round of 16, Roger, because this just is more proof of what we talked about last week with the French Open, that Soderling unfairly, or maybe fairly, gets lumped in with like Buster Douglas by beating Nadal, first player to beat Nadal at Roland Garros. You think of him as Buster Douglas, who beat Mike Tyson. But that's really not fair to Soderling because Douglas was this ultimate upset underdog. Soderling was a really good player. Uh, His health let him down. But for 2009, 2010, and part of 2011, I mean, he was right at the top of the game. Um, So... Yeah, it's unfortunate he wasn't able to sustain that, but this is another example of how yeah, Soderling was absolutely a player at that time. Totally. The final was a five-setter, a little less than four and a half hours. I'm going to go through it set by set real quick here. Wait, before we do that, before we do that, let's look at the Roddick road, because Roddick, I think, also had a very manageable path. I mean, even when the draw came out and he's the sixth seed and the the other highest seeded player in his quarter is uh, Nikolai Davidenko at, at 12. And you got to mention also that Nadal is not in this field, this tournament. Right. That, that's a huge thing here. Um, he had the knee issue. Uh, so Nadal withdrew. So Roddick comes out and plays Jeremy Shardy, who's a, a young Jeremy Shardy at that point. Uh, then he plays Igor Kunitsin. Uh, Russian. These are both four set matches. So he's not rolling through them in straight sets, but he's still in control. Jurgen Melzer, four sets, two of those are tie breaks. Then he takes on Burdick, who will be in the final here a, a year from now or two years from now. Um, so Roddick is through into the quarterfinals without really breaking much of a sweat. Mm-hmm. He had to in the quarterfinals against Hewitt. And I, I think there is some irony to. Roddick and Hewitt, like the yeah. ultimate Federer foils for the first decade here. These two playing this epic quarterfinal. Uh, Roddick wins the first set. Hewitt wins the second in a 22-point tiebreak. Roddick wins the third in a tiebreak. Hewitt wins the fourth, 6-4. Roddick wins the fifth set, 6-4. So that's a marathon. Then he plays Andy Murray. And this is Murray's first real taste at all the Wimbledon hype. First British guy to get to a Wimbledon semifinal since Tim Henman about seven or eight years earlier. And Roddick, you know amplified by the fact that he's playing an American, no less. Right. And I think that that actually works to Roddick's favor because there's really no pressure on him. Um, Good point. Like there's going to be a lot of pressure on Andy Murray, who's 20, just turned 22 years old. Uh, Roddick wins the first set, loses the second, then wins the third and fourth and tie breaks. We'll deal with Murray again for a Federer final next episode, Australia 2010. Uh, So Roddick is through. I think looking at the players he had to face, Roddick had a tougher road, but both guys, uh, I think they they were helped, not helped, but they all got the favor that Nadal wasn't there. And then Federer got the favor that he played Haas, not Djokovic in the semifinals. For sure. And to your point, the 
Nadal is looming large in this final at the end, he's mentioned in the victory speech. So it's addressed, the, the, you know, the, the cat is out of the bag as far as the Nadal-Federer sort of rivalry and, and his place as being a, the number one player or, get, or securing the number one, which we'll talk about in a moment. I, I'm interested in how Roddick got back to this point. He, and this was all documented, he had had some conversations with his fiance. Who was all, I think they got married shortly after this tournament or, or they got sh- married shortly before about whether he wanted to go through with this again, put himself through the grind. Not an admission that he's not going to be a top player, but certainly an admission that like there's a lot of really great players out there. And I just, I don't know if I'm up to the task, but he was. And here he is again. And he found himself with a new coach, Larry Stefanki. Uh, Stefanki. Stefanki, thank you. And there was a point made in the broadcast that Andy, unlike with other coaches, he actually listened to this one or that Stefanki was able to get through to Andy. Can you set up for us before we go through the match how Andy was even able to get back here in the first place and what that road looked like? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with maturity. I mean, he's just an older player. Um, he has been through, he's been, he got to the top of the game at a very young age when he won the 2003 U.S. Open, number one in the world. And we've talked about him a lot on this because he came up and he had the misfortune of coming up against Federer in a couple of major finals. But for every, you know, deep run at a major, you would also see the occasional early flame out. Um, and that's something that, you know, separates the the very good players from the all-time greats, that week-in, week-out consistency. We talk about Federer with the the semifinal streaks and the and the quarterfinal streaks at majors and how impressive those were. And that that's a big part of Federer. So for Roddick to get back to this point, um, he had some, you know, to, let's just backtrack a little bit. Um, 2006 was really the last time we talked about him, the uh, U.S. Open final when yep. he was beaten by Federer. Then 2007, um, he just kind of was dealing with some injuries, just just not quite there. Um, U.S. did win the Davis Cup that year, and he was a, an integral part of that team. So, so that's a huge personal and career accolade for Andy Roddick. Doesn't necessarily give him the, the big events, um, but hey, he is a Davis Cup champion. That's one of those big things he wants. Uh, 2008, it's sort of the same. It's just kind of that scuffling He's hitting the big serves, but those big events, those big wins just aren't really coming. He's still dealing with the injuries a little bit. He picks up a couple of titles. Um, and then at the end of that year is when he hires Larry Stefanke. And that's when things really turn around. I mean, he had a nice run in Australia. He had his best ever uh, performance at the French Open, not by any means his best surface or his best tournament. But here he goes into Wimbledon. And I think there was a different feeling that year about Roddick that maybe you're not picking him to win the tournament, but Andy is back or, or close to back. Or he's playing really good tennis. Um, and maybe he's got a chance to win this tournament. Just occurred to me while I was listening to you and thinking about American tennis players through the ages. Who's the best American tennis player of all time? Well, in the open era or in the open era. Yeah. I'd say it's Sampras on titles alone. Yeah. Titles alone. Um, style of play. The reason I ask it is also because um, in reading about this tournament in particular, uh, conversations were made between Federer and, you know, the greatest of all time. 
And there, you know, there's, there's always that school of thought of people that says you can't compare eras, right? Who knows how many Grand Slams Rod Laver would have won if he was allowed to play Grand Slams the way that the current, you know, the, mo- the modern game. So I was just thinking about Roddick and like, would he have beaten Sampras like in their primes? Like, did he have a shot? Like the way he's played against Federer in these finals and he came up one game short on this one. How do you see their games? Like if Sampras in his prime, Roddick in his prime, what does that match look like? I think it looks um, almost like their careers in that if you're going to pick somebody, you, you probably pick Sampras to win the match. But I mean, it's going to be, you know, just booming baseline tennis. It's going to look like 1990s, early 2000s tennis, essentially pre-Federer tennis. Um, but Roddick's going to win some of those matches. Like, you know, he, he beat Federer sometimes. For sure. Um, Even after this match. I, I would say him. Sampras, you know, the match can be played from the baseline, but Sampras was like a better, probably a, a bit of a better mover than Tactician. Roddick was when he did have to come in. Well, not even just tactician, um, because Roddick is very good at that too, but just like actually like physical movement. Um, like he's just a faster, quicker, a uh, little more agile guy. And Roddick might be the first to tell you that. At least that's what I think. Um, so I, I think Sampras would have the edge, but Roddick's going to win some of those matches in this hypothetical. Speaking of agility, though, Brian, Sampras was not on time. He ran late this match, uh, yeah. came in after the third game, I believe. And there was a big sort of like a, the cameras stopped the game. Everything sort of stopped to focus on him for a good solid, I would say 60 seconds. Did that do anything for or against Roger in that moment? Do you think as far as the, not necessarily the outcome of the match, which we know, but like, did that help or hurt him or was it completely even keel for him? I think by that point, it's like, I I think if this is Federer on opening day at Wimbledon and he's playing some qualifier, and Sampras walks in. I think the qualifier is probably going to gulp. Like, oh my God, Pete Sampras is right there. Um, but for these two guys in the Wimbledon final, they've both the number one in the world. They've obviously met Sampras numerous sure. times. So yeah, they. But you're in the Wimbledon final. Like it's it's not the stakes though, Brian. This is it. This is number this is number fifteen right here. Right. And he comes in late. And then Roger, I read, did make a point to acknowledge him during the match because he said he didn't want to be rude. Yeah, it's just crazy. Right. Um, no, that, that is nuts, but that's also just, it's like Joe Montana being on the sidelines and like Tom Brady running over and shaking his hand and being like, okay, I'm going to go get number six now, buddy. It was just surreal. Funny you mentioned Joe Montana. One of my favorite sports stories, uh, very of its time, the, whichever Super Bowl it was where Montana led like a game winning drive for the 49ers to beat the Bengals. Um, apparently at the beginning of the drive, they're in the huddle. And big movie star at the time, he, he looks, everybody's nervous. And Montana just goes, oh, look, that's John Candy sitting right there. And it was actually John Candy. And that kind of lightened the mood. For sure. I think it was 1988 Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know the number. That sounds right. 88 or 89, one of those two. Yeah. Do you think Sampras wanted to be there? Or was there pressure? He made mention of just getting in that morning and then leaving quickly the following day. So he was sort of like a, you know, inconvenienced. I don't want to use that word, but do you think you wanted to be there? Um, that's a good question. Um, wow. I think that he has like tremendous respect for the game, uh, tremendous respect for Roger. 
So yes, I, I would say like, did Pete Sampras love the thought of like, oh, I'm going to go fly to London this weekend from LA? Probably not. But everything else that's going on, I, th- I think he he felt like I, I should be there and I'll be happy to go watch Roger. That's my gut, at least. Uh, also LA, well, flying from LA, London's a little different than like, he's not flying to Melbourne, like to go to the Australian Open. That's maybe a longer trip. Maybe he's less uh, enthusiastic about that. But it's just the Wimbledon symmetry is just too good because, you know, Pete had won six, uh, the only player in the open era before this match to win six. So there's just too much symmetry for Sampras to stay away from this. Yeah. I mean, we'll never know, but I have a sense that there there was some pressure. Not like he didn't want to do it, but there was a lot of people probably reaching out to him saying, when are we going to see you? And what, when are you going to be arriving in town? Like there was an expectation that he was going to be there. So it kind of like begetted a little bit of whatever I did here over here. I closely scrutinized this post match, uh, Brian, the cameras were on and, and Roger was talking to Pete and, uh, Rod Laver and, uh, Bjorn Borg and Roger was holding court with these guys, but he flat out asked Pete if he was going to be at the dinner that night. Yeah. And Pete's like, no, I'm, I'm out of here. And, <laughs> and that was just sort of like, what, how are you not going to go to the dinner? Uh, but Bjorn Borg was obviously going to be there and Roger kind of downplayed it. He's like, yeah, I got to do whatever they tell me to do. But it just seemed, that seemed a little like, come on, man. I will say with the dinner part though, I kind of respect that for Pete in that, like he hasn't been around much. Okay. So if he shows up at this dinner, it's going to, at the champions ball, it's going to be a big deal. It'll be a distraction. And- a distraction, and he's probably. I mean, yeah, I don't. I don't think he really wanted to go, but you know, it's like, yeah, people are still going to be paying attention to Federer, but Sampras is going to be an attraction. So he probably thinks, like, I'm going to. I don't really want to take. It's not my spot to take his spotlight away. Okay, that's my thought. I did love his post game speech, which we'll talk about. But he called Federer a stud. And I do want to revisit it at the end because we know we have the benefit of being in the future and knowing the, the sort of current state of affairs of tennis. But the things that Sampras said, it, it is just sort of interesting. And, and it, it goes back to his whole thing about, I never thought I'd be eclipsed in seven years. I don't think Roger ever thought he'd be eclipsed in the time that, he, you know, or, or close to it in the time either. So there's, there's a parallel there. And, and I'll bring it up when we talk about what Federer had to say about Andy after the match as well. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, there's a video graphic I wanted to ask you about, Brian, in the, uh, on the YouTube broadcast that I watched, it was the British broadcast. It wasn't the McEnroe, the American broadcast that we would have seen on, I I would believe it would have been on NBC or maybe it had turned to ESPN at that point. There's a video graphic of two separate Roger serves. It's one of the coolest graphics I've seen. And I don't remember seeing anything like this before, but basically Roger's serve is overlaid two different serves are overlaid on top of each other. And the motion, it, they're, they're showing two things. His motion and the point of contact are identical. So he's super consistent in his motion. But the ball ends up on opposite sides of the court. And the point of this graphical overlay was to show that his disguise is otherworldly. And hence why his serve is so effective and why he was winning 97% of the service games in that Wimbledon tournament. Um, Can you speak to that? Can you speak to this notion of there being an identical service motion, an identical point of contact, but that he's able to direct the ball in completely opposite sides of the box? 
Right. So players are going to have different serves for different situations. Like obviously, certainly a first serve is going to be more aggressive in most cases than a second serve when you need to play it safe and, and get something in. Then you've got players with different kinds of serve. You've got like a slice serve where literally you slice off the ball and where it's different. The point of contact will be the same, but the angle of the racket is what's going to make the difference in terms of where the ball's going. So you might try to put some kick on the ball, then it really jumps up and it's harder for the opponent to deal with. Um, you might be Nick Kyrgios and try the underhand serve just to catch your opponent napping. Um, Michael but Chang it's really, too. Yeah, Chang uh, certainly as well against uh, Yvonne Lendl. Um, so it's really all about the different, you know, the strike point's going to be the same, but the way you're positioning yourself is going to be a little bit different. Fascinating. So before we go into the sets, was this Roddick's last great match? Um, off the top of my head, yes. They play a few more times, and he beats him in uh, in Miami, I believe. But um, a five-setter final, Wimbledon, this was as high as it got. Yeah, and that's, I think, the part that's just so frustrating for Roddick that this is, you know, anybody else on any other day, he's the Wimbledon champion. Yes. And it just, I mean, he played almost a perfect match. He was broken once in yeah. the very last game. That's enough. And that's the part that's just got to be so maddening uh, uh, for Roddick. But was that yeah, an in between? Played... Was that an in between the ears thing? It was 16 15, and, or no, 14. It was 14 15. And how many more times are we going to go through this? Was it a lapse? I will say no, because, and we'll talk about this when we get real into it. Um, his big chance was at eight all. Okay. Yeah, he, he had two break points. Federer saved them both. If he gets broken there, or if he, excuse me, if he squanders those break points like he did, and then Federer holds the next, or breaks him the next game, that you can chalk up to a mental lapse okay. um, that he loses there. But no, I mean, you lose at this point in the match. Like, that's that's not mental. That's just somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. Uh, first set, Andy gets set point on Rogers' serve. Big deal, right? And he converts. No first set. You think this match goes the distance? Um, like if if Federer, yeah, like these guys were so. This first set was everything for Roddick. Is is sort of like my question slash statement, right? I don't think so because like there. I mean, maybe, maybe if he gets in his, but Roddick was so good on this day that, and with his with with him serving the way he was, like wh why not? Why couldn't he? win the next two sets or win two of the next three sets. Like, I, I don't, I disagree. I don't think this was make or break. I mean, he's not some guy just trying to hang on. Like at this point, Roddick is playing so well that he's, I'm not saying the equal to Federer, but he is belonging on that court. Well, for all intents and purposes, he was pretty equal to Federer this match. There's no, absolutely. I mean, the data points are all there in front of us. It's mostly just me in my own head too. Just like it's much easier to play from ahead than it is to play down you know, play from behind. And then right. especially when you're, especially when you're staring at, you know, the Usain Bolt of his sport, so to speak, and you gotta, you gotta do another lap. And when he's got a little bit of an edge against you, it's like, how do I make up that time? I thought it was massive to win the first set for him. Oh, it's huge. But in terms of how the match went, I would think it's a bigger deal that, you know, what was more crucial was the second set tiebreak. Federer saved four set points. I think if Roddick goes up two sets, he's not losing the match. Interesting. That is, like Roddick would not, the way he's playing, he's not losing, like he's going to win one of the next three sets, Roddick. 
Um, so that I think is, is actually the bigger deal um, in terms of the overall result. You segued beautifully, actually. The second set tiebreak goes to a tiebreak. The crowd is split down the line, it feels, by the way. They're, they're cheering equally for both players. There's, ma- there's mention is made of it. Even Andy said a very beautiful thing at the end of the match. He's like, I'm not, you know, this is not a cruel sport. I, I'm one of the lucky guys that you people root for me. That was a really cool. He, he, in many ways, he also won this match as far as, as far as hearts and minds, right? Big time. It goes up 6-2, though. This is crucial. He goes up 6-2, four set points. Like you said, Roger gets it to 6-6, and he gets one set point, and that's all it takes. Six points in a row, Brian, from a 6-2, from down 6-2 in a tie break. What can you say about that from Roger's point of view, the clutch factor, or was it a complete lapse on Roddick's part? Like, who, who won that tie break? Roger, but again, it's not Roddick. Like, yes, should he have won one of those four points? Yes, but he, he didn't just completely like decide like, oh, I, I've got this in the bag. I'm going to go take a break now. It's just these things happen. I mean, it's Roger Federer. Like it's- but it doesn't happen often. Four, right. four set point chances in a final. I tried to mess around with Tennis Abstract, and then I got frustrated because it kept on crashing that- Heroku network crash kept happening and I was cursing Jeff Sackman. I'm like, what are like this? I need this for a podcast. Damn it. But I don't think this has happened before. Four set points chances in a final. This is an outlier event. Fair. Um, yeah, it's not what you expect. Okay. So Federer takes the second set and he walks I made a note here that he walked to the chair with one hand in his pocket. And even, even Roddick made mention of the fact that one of the things that he's eternally jealous of Roger for is his sort of poise and calm. Even on the practice court, he's in between points. He's talking to people. He's smiling. But I will say that Roddick looked distinctively calm and poised all the way through the fifth set of this match as well. So it was, there was an interesting... I don't know if he had internalized that at this point in his career, if he was reflecting, but he also looked very cool. Kind of shrugged off the set. They come into the third set, which also goes into a, to a tie break. Roger gets three set points this time. He only needs two to win. Gavin Rosdale, a big deal is made of him. He gives a standing ovation at that point. And again, this is just splitting hairs here, Brian. Because when you're looking back on it, we kind of know what the outcome is, but you're just sort of scrutinizing the people that are in the box and the people that are right. around him. It didn't go over so well with the Roddick camp. Um, any thoughts on the, the seating arrangement in there, by the way? Um, it's always fun to watch the seating arrangements and to see the different superstitions. Like, some, like I've talked to people who have sat in boxes and certain players, it's like, like you're just sitting there to just like listen, like listen to the uh, listen to the player just just complain for two hours. Like you are there as like their outlet. Like they're just gonna use you as like a verbal punching bag, and you just have to sit there and just kind of take it. Um, so everybody's got different things, and it's just it's just interesting to see that how those all those different dynamics play out. Fourth set, Roddick gives a relative drubbing. Okay, he yeah. wins. He wins at six three. 
Mention is made of his coach uh, by the broadcast. What did Stefanski bring to the table, Brian? I don't know if there were maybe just different looks at things. Um, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but you know, it's, it's a combination of things. Roddick's more mature. Roddick's healthy after a couple of years with injuries. Uh, and that maturity probably also provides some perspective like, okay, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I've got uh, who knows how many more ch- like real chances I'm going to have here. And then you get just a different set of eyes, a different voice in like Stefanki that can all help you go in the right direction. Fifth set, you said 8-8. Eight, eight. Roddick serves to get it to 6-6. Six, six, and the battle of service games begins. By the way, we mentioned the box. Props to Mirka, by the way, who was very pregnant and staying out there in the sun, front and center, for four and a half hours. And I think at this point, nobody knows that it's twins either. So there's this, there was that right. added dynamic. And someone made a comment. I guess the British have a little bit more leeway in their broadcast commentary, but they made a point to comment on how there was very little room in that box. Listening to that in 2020, it just didn't sound right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't seem like, it didn't seem like they cared very much either. 1415 is the critical sort of fulcrum of the, of the set here. Before that, it's, they're just killing it on serve. Very little activity, quick work. Roger many times had maybe three or four strokes an entire game on his serve besides the serves themselves. Um, but at 14-15, Roger, on Andy's serve, like you mentioned, um, Federer quickly goes up love 30. And you can start to hear the crowd a little bit. The commentator says, what's Roddick got left? And I almost felt like Roddick heard that because it makes me wonder. I know there's no connection whatsoever, but I kind of feel like Roddick was out of his mind a little bit uh, or he was thinking. We've talked about Agassi in his book a few episodes back about how the fifth set is all about getting outside of yourself. And he mentioned James Blake and how for the first time we were on equal footing. We were both just two guys in a slugfest. Um, I think for a split second here, down love 30, Roddick recognizes what he, where he's standing and what's going on. And I think that's sort of what worked against him here. He does get it to 40-30, okay? But then he hits, he mishits. One of those classic Federer mishits, by the way. Like the ball's over here and the racket's over there. Uh, and, it, and then Roger, so Roger gets it to deuce. And this creates the first real tension of the match. I think outside of the tie break, the second set tie break. There's tension the whole set. I mean, this is a 90 minute set. Uh, yeah, but win. like the, the moment, Brian, when the championship is in the balance, it's, it's a, this is something that we've seen at least a half a dozen times when Roger senses that it's right there for him. Okay. It's that moment where okay. yeah, I get he starts to do, he starts to do this a little bit more. And Andy's just, there's just something different about this, this deuce advantage Federer and the this is actually where it becomes less of a match for me and more of a theatric sort of experience because the it's advantage Federer Brian the camera trains on Pete not Roddick the camera trains on Pete and then not only does it train on Pete but it zooms in on Pete and he's wearing those glasses which you know not necessarily 
in that month's version of GQ. Fair to say? No, okay. no yeah, that's, that's quite accurate. He could have done better with the glasses. Uh, he's still wearing them, by the way, when everybody else has taken them off, which is another sort of thing about did he want to be there. The match point is unspectacular. Another Roddick mishit. Federer actually jumps in exultation before the ball hits the ground. Final moment for you. What was your memory? What was your takeaway from the net to the speech? Um, it had that just that very like coronation feel, um, which probably is because it was at Wimbledon and Federer's got like this tournament. He was wearing the white hat with or the, the white with the and the RF logo was gold, gold trim. Um, yeah, um, I just remember thinking. I just remember being really. You know, like you're nervous the whole like you, it was stressful to watch this match because you wanted to end, go both ways. Like, yeah, I wanted Roddick to win. I mean, the just the way he was playing, um, I guess the American partisanship. Like, I wanted Roddick to win the match. So I was rooting for him. Yeah. Um, I was disappointed that he didn't, but it's Federer's. So I mean, it's not like the guy's a villain. I just remember thinking like, and then, then I think you quickly realize like, okay, the he's just too good. Like it, this is history we're watching here. And that's what it felt like. Andy tosses the racket sort of in resignation after when they're both running to the net. It, and Roger's celebration was mostly muted and, 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 and somewhat grateful as humble as you can be when you're the man, he breaks the tie Brian with Sampras and woods on the same day. What a timely sporting statistic to be a part of. Yeah. Well, I didn't even think about the woods part. Yeah. We've talked about tiger a little bit. Um, yeah. 2009, not a great year for tiger. Um, yeah, that, that is pretty wild to think about, obviously very different. Um, but yes. also I think it, it's very fitting for Roger to do it at Wimbledon where he won his first. Um, the other thing too, with, with this match in itself that I, I think bears mentioning, we talk a lot about, especially early, the first couple of Wimbledons he won where he's able just to, you know, eat up those big servers like Philippousis, like Roddick. Roddick said after this match that Federer, for whatever, like I think he said for the first time ever, he wasn't really seeing my serve that well, but you would never know by watching him. Like he, it wasn't bothering him. Like mm. it wasn't affecting him that something Roger's usually able to do really well. He, it just wasn't clicking on this day. But something we don't usually see from Roger, the huge serve of his own. He had 50 aces in this match. Of course, that, uh, a fifth set of that length is going to give you plenty of options to opportunities to bomb serves but 50 aces to win Wimbledon that's erotic like stat and Federer does it to win the tournament many people have said Roger shouldn't have won this match but he out aced him 50 to 27 where did you see a case uh for that point of view yeah I disagree with that like I I think that there's a difference between he should not have won and he was maybe fortunate to win um because I think you know, eight all in the fifth set, Roddick's got two break points and then he serves for the championship, but he can't convert them. But then at the same time, you know, Federer's got to go out and win those points and that, that's what he did. So yeah, maybe that makes him fortunate to win, but he, he's not undeserved. He served first. If the serve order was flipped, if Roddick was going into the game, uh, that game up 15-14, does that play into any of this? Do you put any stock in that statement or is that completely, you know, it's like a NFL coin toss. It is what it is. 
I mean, by no, the way, it's... by the way, I hate NFL coin tosses, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like uh, Patrick Mahomes would have had two Super Bowls if it weren't for. An, I'm one of those guys. But what do you make oh, of that over time? Yeah, yeah. What oh no, there's it, it. It definitely makes a difference because if you serve first, you're setting the pace. Yeah. So if you get on the board, then the other guy's got to answer immediately. Like, and it's not like baseball where you're always going to get the, the home team. Okay, they're going to bat second, but they get that last at bat. You're not guaranteed that last at bat in tennis, but the other team is always going to the other guy is always going to be able to set the pace. Whoever serves first. Not only that last at bat, you're guaranteed three more outs. Right. The other thing that, yeah, the, the person who serves first sets the pace, but at the same time, you could say, okay, if they're broken right off the bat and then the guy gets to serve already with a break in, in their pocket, I mean, that's an advantage for them. But generally, if you can serve first, you want to serve first. Yeah. Unless the wind, you know, the, the, you'll see play, if the wind is really going to make a difference, then you'll see um, them choose the side as opposed to the serve. Post-match, Brian. Andy's speech was gold, was solid gold. Roger, don't be too sad. I went through some rough ones. And then, and then Andy, I'm actually, to his credit, I'm glad he did this. He's like, you had five. You already had five. I don't know. I, I actually didn't love, I didn't love that Roger said that for some reason. What did you make of that? It, 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 was, it, it was brushed off. He actually had a very human moment. Uh, Andy's actually mentioned it at length in later interviews about in the locker room, how you know there was no celebration. Roger was very sensitive to him being alone there and letting him have his moment and getting his team out of there. But this don't be too sad. Yeah, I lost. I, I lost last summer. It still hurts. It just, it was botched. I... I agree. I think it's just it's just awkward. Like very awkward. Yeah. Where's his PR machine here at this point? Number fifteen. Well, there's no PR machine on the court. You know, it's then it's on it's on the the player. Um, and this is like that that peak Federer era where he he said a fair amount of things that just kind of like made you wince. Yes, this made me wince the most. The most. Yeah. Um, but he says those things. But then, like you said, like Roddick. Uh, in the years since this match has always talked about just, you know, how gracious Federer really is in victory. So like, I guess you like, whatever, he says something awkward and uncomfortable, not even uncomfortable, just like makes you cringe a little bit, but then he comes back out and the way he, it's like, look what he does as opposed to what he says and everything else he's doing. He seems to be handling correctly. No, that's beautifully stated. Look, the, he's not a professional orator, you know, and, right. and, and, and put any of us, Put a microphone in front of any of us in a major milestone moment of our life, and I would bet you it's a coin toss whether we botch it or not. And I and I, it's more than a higher probability, maybe 70, 80, 90% chance that if any one of us goes back and looks at what we said, we ourselves would cringe and be like, oh, I would have done this or I would have done that. So, but at this point, 15 in, and then to tell tell the guy who's lost to him every single time. Don't be too sad. I've also been where you are. Oh, it was just, no. I, that was like, yeah. he had a couple of chances to retract, but he kept going and he finished the thought. And to me, it actually kind of took away from the moment, you know, as a fan. I was really, I was actually really happy for him. I wanted him to beat Sampras. I actually wanted Roddick to win. I wanted Roddick to beat him one time. I figured at this point, if Djokovic can beat him and if Nadal can beat him and if all, you know, then 
I actually like Andy Roddick. I've liked him since the beginning. I've liked him since backwards hat Andy Roddick. I would like to see him beat Federer. It's not going to take anything away from Federer's legacy at all. Um, So I was sort of like, at the end of this match, I was kind of like, I was happy and sad. It wasn't wasn't like a definitive one for me. But when he said that, I kind of was like, oh man, at least Andy got the hearts and minds though. Right. Like my, I think the mindset to think about is like, you're watching this. It was a pretty fair assumption that, okay, even if Federer doesn't win this match, he, he's going to win another major at some point. Of course. You didn't, you yes. didn't feel that about Roddick. I mean, you thought, okay, maybe I'll have a chance, but this might be it. And even after the match in the press conference, Roddick was asked, this whole tournament, has it given you a new belief, a greater confidence that you can be a slam winner again? He said, I mean, this might've just been brushing it off. It's tough to read it just as printed out instead of actually hearing his tone. But he said, no, no, you know, it's just tough to kind of digest it, then come here and give you guys but some insight. So he's like, I just keep going. That's all I can do. So he's not, maybe he sensed it too. He's not walking off the court like, I, you know, uh, did it go my way today, but US Open in six weeks, two months, I, I can win there. Maybe that'll do it. And like, he, I think he might have sensed that this was, he knew this was a big chance and you don't know if you're going to get another one of those chances. And he never, never did to this extent. Roger's look, the jacket with the 15 on the back. What say you? I mean, again, just kind of wince at that one. Um, I, I get it. I understand it, but doesn't mean I like it. Um, I like how it's, it's more of a like tennis appropriate jacket where it looked kind of like a warm up, not like a blazer. Athletic. It looked more yeah, athletic. It, so it didn't look quite as out of place. Uh, the gold trim is just a little, you know, it's a little much, but I, I like it better than the blazer. Put it that way. Yeah, for sure. The blazer is definitely, the, the blazer is not making, the blazer is making our hall of shame, not our hall of yes. fame. I like the look, looking back at it. I had forgotten about the 15. It's just not my style, you know? Yeah. No. I, I, I know you got, the world knows you have 15, but again, it, it is what it is. I would have, I would have, I would not do that in front of my opponent, I guess is kind of my point. But I will also give Roger credit because I don't, I, I highly doubt that was his idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's his choice at all. I think it's all Nike and their yeah. team, their team of creatives that are building this vibe and this, this sort of productization of the athlete, the commoditization right. of the athlete. I don't think it's his vibe, and 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 I and they've given you a, a large sum of money. You're kind of a, you're gonna be you're gonna do what they say. I will say, talking about looks, I think his you know jumping ahead a bit, he loses uh, the 2009 U.S. Open final to Del Potro, but the shirt he had on in that final that is one of the best looks I think he's ever had. The black shirt with the red collar and trim, great look. That uh, we're very much going to talk about that match. I actually. Didn't go to work the next day. I was so depressed. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that story. Because this guy came out of nowhere. I'm like, I can't catch a break. First it's Nadal. Now it's Djokovic. Now it's Del Potro. What's going on here? Um, <laughs> by the way, I got to do like an errors and omissions section. Uh, last episode, I believe we said that Brady had five rings. Or I said he, had, he has six rings. So he's in MJ status. And then the other thing... I said that Nadal wears a $250,000 watch. It's actually, Brian, a $750,000 watch. The Richard Miele, I think, I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, Miele or Miele. 
Mia, uh, I think. Wow. RM27-3. I wonder if the first one, was, I, maybe when the deal first started, it was like only uh, 200 grand. And then maybe it's now bumped up to three quarters of a million dollars. I think at one point it, it was in twos and good for uh, them to give a more expensive watch. Uh, the, the most recent one is in that realm. Uh, went on eBay. I spent a lot of time on eBay lately, Brian, looking at those Roger Federer bonds. <laughs> and I clicked off of that and I got, I found Nadal's watches. They were, they were somehow algorithmically linked together. Um, the, uh, I put in a, I put in a bid at like $190 or something just to like have fun. And it's so like, you haven't hit the reserve, bud. Like you gotta keep going. So, um, on the, on the shoes that is not the watch. We talk about Federer's like business acumen. Nadal is the goat in that department. Like it's not close. Nadal at the beginning of this quarantine was doing some like home video thing where he was just filming himself kind of talking and it was fun, but he's, he was using some kind of kit, like a mixer something in the kitchen and he was using it backwards. And the reason he was using it backwards was because he didn't like, he didn't want the brand to appear because I guess either, I don't think he has a, a sponsorship deal with a home supplies company, but they weren't like this company wasn't paying him. So why is he putting it on his Instagram live? So that's, that's next level thinking from Rafa. He is the goat in that department. He's coached is what you're saying. I don't know if he's coached or if he's just learned it himself, whatever it is, it's working. Well, he's holding out for his own kitchen appliance line, man. Yeah. A line of, uh, I, I remember that video vividly. I don't remember the blockage though. I just assumed he's just holding it kind of like, like you're looking like, why is he doing that? And interesting, that's why. interesting. Fascinating. I don't know though. I will counter that Roger has set up a quite, quite a nice little mogul mode post tennis. I mean, the, the interests that he has, they're both, they're both fascinating stories unto themselves, but I do feel like if anybody should be wearing a watch on court, it's it is Roger. I feel like that was a that was an opportunity missed by Rolex. I don't think he wears a watch on the court, or does he? I always see him putting it on. No, most most players don't. Nadal is very rare in that department. I would like to know just for fun. You know, everybody's releasing the well. The government's releasing everybody who got a PPP loan, and everybody's releasing who makes what and does this. I would love to know the list of people that have that Richard Mille watch in their possession, you know, like that actually paid, not that it was given to right. or sponsored, but someone who actually wrote a check to have that watch. I got to imagine the list is small. I have often wondered the same because what's the point of sponsoring? Like, like you're, you're basically advertising to like 19 people on the planet. Right. And you and I are not in those 19. Yes. So I think that that's a big aspect. Like I, I, I'll look at that company's site and I'm confused because like, okay, Nadal is one of the greatest tennis players of all time, but you see a lot of athletes that are nowhere near the caliber of Nadal. And it's like, why would I buy this like random Formula One driver's watch when they're like, not like, it's not Lewis Hamilton. Like they're not that good. Right, right. But like they have a, like, why am I like, who's buying that watch? Like, that's the one that really gets me. Like Nadal, I can, I can understand. I mean, he's one of the greatest of all time. So that makes some sense. But there are more run-of-the-mill athletes. That's where I really wonder about it. Yeah, and that and also, like, if I'm, if I'm spending... They paid him a lot of money, okay? There's no question. I don't know what it is. They paid him a lot of money to wear the watch. If I'm going to be spending all that money on advertising, I want to have a product that I can kind of get out to the masses, if you will. It's just more, Again, more ROI, right? I mean, but 
maybe we're just maybe we're just the plebeians, Brian, and we have no idea what this means, but it just doesn't make it doesn't pencil out for me. Yeah, it's we are not the target market for these uh, these collections. Good to know, though, that if you do want to buy one, most um, of these sites in this marketplace do offer free shipping. So if you uh, <laughs> buy your watch for $143,200, you will not have to pay for shipping. Oh, man, that's funny. Great example right here. You know who has one now? And he's a big one. I forgot. I knew there was somebody in tennis. Sasha Zverev, his watch on this site, $177,000. Wow. And that's his watch or, is his, or a watch his watch for himself? It is the, it is his, no, it's like. It's a his, the branded watch for him. It's like the Sasha Zverev model watch, yes. Like on the. Ins- Who's the manufacturer? Richard Mill. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Who is this guy? I don't know. Just look him up right now. I'm looking though, it, the Zverev watch, it has a Velcro strap. Like, like I don't I'm, I'm, again, I'm not the target market. I'm actually a fan of the Velcro strap. I have the Velcro strap on my uh, iWatch. If I'm buying a $177,000 watch, I'm not being utilitarian. (laughs) Actually, this is a great kind of segue from what we were talking about last week when we were talking about players with logos, who should have it and who shouldn't and who doesn't, who doesn't anyway. have a $100,000 watch. Well, apparently this is what they're going for. It, It actually fits the tennis. This is fascinating actually. And it just occurred to me in the process of having this conversation, we were wondering why there aren't more tennis sneakers. Maybe watches is the tennis play. Well, maybe sneakers no, are passe for the tennis crowd, and watches are more aligned with the branding of the sport. Does that make I, any sense? It does. Um, I know we're being a little tongue in cheek here, but there's absolutely truth. I mean, if you watch a tennis tournament, if you watch a golf tournament, those commercials are very different than what you get if you're watching an NFL game. You're getting or an a lot NBA of commercials. Game. NBA, absolutely. You're getting a lot of commercials for you know uh, investment products. You're getting Lexus, like high-end car brands. You're not getting Bud Light commercials. Um, there's absolutely, absolutely truth to that. Fascinating. There's a documentary waiting to happen right there on the tennis shoeification of watches. Yeah. Any stray items on Grand Slam number 15? Um, we got five more left. Yeah. Wow. The home um, stretch. Like we said, one of the, I would say the three best finals. Uh, maybe the, you know, two of the most historic wins. Uh, these last two slams, obviously completing the career Grand Slam at Roland Garros the month earlier and then beating, uh, surpassing Sampras here. That's a huge deal. Wow, it is crazy. There's only five left. Um, this is the last major title of the decade. I mean, and forget decade. Like, how about the fact that he wins this many majors in not even a full decade? Like, he won the first Wimbledon 03. So in about seven years worth of major tournaments, he passes Pete Sampras. That's wild. Okay, now I'm going to throw this at you because I have to. Is this the greatest seven-year stretch in tennis? yes, is my off the, my immediate thought is yes. I won't hold you to it. I'll let you ponder it for next time as well. And I would like to actually, because it just came to me as we were talking here, as many of the things that we talk about do, I'm going to look into that as well. I'm going to look, let's look, let's, our homework assignment for next podcast, let's look at seven-year stretches in sports across the board and see where Roger stacks up. Yeah, it's good. I, Just, like that. I, I, I think it's safe to say it's Jordan-esque. 
I would imagine from 91 to 98, there's your Jordan era right there. Would you give some time off for baseball? Come up with two and I'll come up with two and let's see where Roger fits on the spectrum. Okay. Sound fun? Sounds good. Thank you as always. This was a lot of fun. I will see you next week where we talk Grand Slam 16, which is... Australia 2010. All right, my man. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Vic. 